The Zooier Than Thou podcast is intended for adult audiences and contains mature language and content. It may not be suitable for younger audiences, so if you don't remember a time before J.K. Rowling had a Twitter account, this one may not be for you. Hark, fellow zoos, whether zoomer or boomer, it's time for Zooier Than Thou. Hey, what can I say? You got me howling at the moon. Whoa, but don't you know the love is wild when you're a zoo? With zooier than thou. Oh, yeah. Welcome back, fellow zoos, to a community minded episode of Zooier Than Thou. I'm co-host and Thing 1, Lovecat. And I'm Canis Gnosis, Thing 2 and co-co-host for this episode. I hope there's no hierarchy implied in things being designated 1 and 2. I think we're both thing-fluid enough to deal with it. Thing-fluid? I might be into that, depending on the thing in question. I'm pretty fond of some things. And don't I know it. You have rather a thing for things, don't you? Especially those involving fluids. I certainly couldn't deny that. Not plausibly, anyway. But, as interesting and varied are the things and fluids that might catch an inclusive zoophile's attention, they're not actually what we're here to talk about today, my fine feathered cane. Maybe they're not what you're here to talk about. Well, let us adhere to the maxim of business before pleasure, dear wolf, and get on with the show. We'll be discussing the culture of caring that is so needed in the world today, especially by zoos. And what, pray tell, does that entail? It entails discussing zooey culture, past, present, and future. Sounds like a robust topic for us to cover. It ought to be. Zoos have been around a long time, and though our presence is largely marginalized and disavowed, we yet remain. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that we might have a helpful thing or two to say about the human experience. As you and I both know, the zoo family is blessed with many brave, thoughtful, and creative souls. Oh, yes, indeed. We've known some personally, uh, the co-founders of this very podcast, and a whole plethora of uh, zoos who are not so publicly well known. Well, it loops back to the theme of the episode in a way. Those who came before and what they passed on uh, to us now and what we can hope to pass on to those that come in the future. It's part of the very definition of culture, regardless of your species. Uh, Well, to get things started, we have a couple of emails to read, and they both bear considerably on the topic at hand, as it happens. Or the topic bears on them, or something. Our first email comes from... (laughs) Yes, bear jokes. We are a zoo podcast, after all. Our first email comes from Drooby Dooby Doo. Drooby Doo writes, Hey, y'all. I'm only on episode two into your show, and I wanted to just say thanks for putting it together. Hearing you take intelligent stances on issues like the zoo sadism leaks encourages me that I'm not a crazy person or somehow hypocritical to be appalled by their behavior, but still a zoophile in my own way. Though I started feeling this particular call of the wild since early in my life, I've always been a bit of a lurker, never really chatting with or interacting with the community at large. Instead, hanging out on the edges of forums and deleting every draft reply I typed. I know a big part of it are the issues I have accepting those parts of myself both privately and publicly, along with a latent concern that I'd only find the shitty brand of cruel and crazy and feel even worse about those parts of myself. Mm. Your podcast is starting to help make a dent in the latter, but it'll take a lot of time to properly undo the years of self-oppression of the former. As folks living a lot more zooey out and proud than I do, any tips or thoughts on this? Anything from this is how to meet sane zoophiles to I still struggle with this is appreciated. Seriously, 
Thanks for making me feel like I'm not alone, Drew. Well, first of all, Drew, we're pleased as a pampered poodle that you've taken this step and reached out. We certainly understand where you're coming from, as zoos have been so marginalized and demonized that many of us can't even admit to ourselves what we feel, and therefore doing so amongst others can be daunting, to say the least. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on overcoming that barrier. It's an important step towards self-acceptance and self-love. Absolutely. You are certainly right to be appalled by zoo sadism. Uh, it is absolutely antithetical to what zoophilia is and what any sane zoophile would tolerate. So you are not an odd duck on that count at all. Oh, not by not by a long shot. Uh, as far as being out loud and proud goes, uh, not everyone needs to necessarily be out loud and proud. Uh, not everyone needs to be a flag waver. Um, in general, zoos are going to have to be coming out uh, at some point, and it's going to be exceptionally dangerous for the... Uh, the first wave, which is us. Um, but that's a very personal decision. Not everyone has that need inside them to uh, to be out. You know, some people can just uh, live privately and be totally fine with that. And I envy that, actually. Uh, I don't have that. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's a betrayal of myself to have to pretend that I'm a way significantly different than I actually am when the way that I am is not bad or harmful or shameful or anything like that. It's exactly. just fine. So, uh, purely a personal decision. And, uh, what really matters is that you are okay and, uh, better than okay with you. So other things that you can do, um, build your knowledge base, uh, we're actually going to be talking about this later on in the episodes. So I won't go too into it, but, um, you know, study, uh, think of what you can do that will serve, uh, your own purposes, uh, that will serve you as a zoo, that will serve other zoos, that will serve non-humans and that will serve, uh, uh, humanity generally and life on this planet generally, because that is what it's all about. Living your best possible zooey self is one of the best things you can do to be a proud zoo. Uh, like we're going to cover, uh, learning about, the species of your interests and other species and you know even how to communicate with your fellow humans are all mm -hmm. uh useful is is not even the term i want to use here it's it's they're vital they're vital for our stage mm -hmm. uh looking for our rights as a people and rights for the other uh, species we share this world with mm -hmm. uh, absolutely living your best possible life in some ways that is the best way you can be proud out and proud Especially, mm -hmm. you know, in these times when safety is still a concern for us. And remember that pride means having a deep understanding of your own worth. So we all experience pride in different ways. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be uh, the parade style, even though that is pretty fucking fabulous. He's going to oh, disagree yeah. with that. Uh, moving on, um, the years of repression, I can certainly personally uh, relate to that. Uh, I went through a period of progressive repression and it did a lot of harm. Uh, repression is certainly harmful. Mm -hmm. And the harm can be uh, insidiously subtle. Uh, coming to stop hating what you are is one, maybe the first critical step forward in becoming a healthy person who is free to contribute their own value to the world. Uh, and then beyond that, forgiving yourself for the repression is just as important and at least as difficult because the pain does continue long after the denial ends. Uh, but if you've come this far, you can go further, and there are people who care about you to help you do that. As Steve mentions later in this episode, the key to making good connections and avoiding bad actors lies in being authentic. If you're looking to meet zoos because you're one and you want to be part of that community, 
chances are you will conduct yourself in a way that will indicate that you are, you know, the real thing and not a threat to others. Seeking, uh, you know, hookups, especially for the purpose or with the expectation of having sex with a non-human animal provided by another person is not going to get you what you are looking for, most likely. Legit people can often recognize each other and are highly sensitive to ulterior motives and are out there looking for each other. Mm -hmm. It's been my experience, certainly. The struggle for self-acceptance can be especially hard for people who have been highly marginalized and subjected to gross villainization, uh, but that struggle doesn't have to be with oneself. It can be redirected at the circumstances which caused one to feel the need to struggle against oneself to begin with, uh, meaning the system which tells you incessantly that you're inherently wrong to exist as you are. Mm -hmm. You are not inherently wrong to exist as you are. The system is wrong to be telling you that. Just because we don't fit into their bullshit holes doesn't mean there's anything wrong with our shape. Nope. Next up, we have an email from Doggy Love, who expresses exactly what this podcast is intended to foster, and in fact touches on so many of the points we discuss that I think it's right to say that this episode is for Doggy Love, and every zoo who feels as, and we, do. Thank you so much for starting this podcast. I'm five episodes in and can't stop listening, learning, and laughing. I want to keep this short, so I'll just say this. This podcast helped me rediscover myself and what it means to be a zoo. I was kind of lost there for a while with no sense of community or normalcy. Beastborn showed me that I'm not alone sexually, but this podcast has shown me that I'm not alone mentally and emotionally, and that there are other people that not only have the same sexual preference as me, but also that there are people there just as empathetic caring and truly love animals and their well-being and emotions like i do i'm finally feeling like i fit in and that has improved my life more than words can express i'm just going to read them all yeah. the first few episodes about the sadism and beast forum were definitely an eye-opener i didn't realize how many fucked up people claiming to be zoo there are I don't want to spend too much time on the subject, but I want to thank you for shedding light on the issue, separating us from them, and assuring us something was happening to rectify and stop the abuse. Thank you so much for shedding light on evil and showing the world the true loving zoo community. The Zoo Pride episode really woke up my inner zoo and I realized all the awesome things about myself that can be attributed to being a zoo. I have always been an empathetic person. I have always had a deep connection with dogs that normal people don't seem to have. I have love, understanding, and a need to help every dog I meet. I have saved countless dogs' lives, helped rehabilitate and build confidence in more dogs than I can count. I am absolutely obsessed with learning everything I can about canines from body language, communication, training, psychological science, anatomy, and everything in between. I have spent 90% of my life with dogs and have met many, many, many wonderful dogs, all with their own personalities, needs, wants, desires, fears, joys, pastimes, and so forth. I have dedicated my life to helping dogs. I have tailored my life around my dogs. I will never get a 9-5 job, let them go without or get hurt in any way emotionally or physically. I care for them way more than I care about myself or anything else in this world. I am grateful to be a zoo, and I'm glad I can finally say that. I got so used to going through life, I forgot to stop and smell the roses. I don't want to get too personal, 
but this podcast truly saved my life. I was going down a path of lust and love was ending up at the back burner. I was having some inner battles and I was in a really bad spot emotionally. I feel like I finally found myself, like all the good parts of me are coming together and are surfacing at once. I just want to say one more thing. Rest in peace, Bausti. I will miss your passion, your commitment, and your love for the betterment of animals and the zoo community. P.S. I really loved it when Fausti ended the podcast with, Be nice to each other. It's the sexiest, zooiest thing you can do. This really warms my heart every time I hear him say that. I teared up writing it. That really sums up what it is to be a zoo in a few simple words. I have actually gone back and listened to the end of podcast where he says that because it feels so meaningful and powerful. It really speaks to my heart and soul. Just those few simple words. Wow, that is not only a beautiful and moving email, it is so in line with what we are about to talk about that it's... it's there, there's uh, almost nothing to add yet. Yeah, um, basically everything that Doggy Love just mentioned about his own experience and feelings and uh, thoughts and purpose are what we're about to discuss in uh, in more detail. So I think we will just let that be our response to this uh, particular email. And thank you so much, Doggy Love, for sending it. Absolutely. Uh, we are ecstatic that uh, this has happened in your life. Oh, yeah. So such a wonderful example of what it means to be Zooey. No, not mm-hmm. to mention zooier than thou <laughs> in in the, in the most uh self-aware tongue-in-cheek sort of way but still this is what it means to be zoo to be zooey mm-hmm. zoosexual zoophile whatever your preference is in terminology but no words should send a poet and we will when we ramble about it a little more later in the episode and we'll be back with that discussion right after this this week's podcast is sponsored by The Zoo Ebook Club. Outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. Visit zebook.club to learn more about this real book club you can actually participate in. And also by Edward Albee, America's greatest playwright, whose rave reviews include Edward Albee's plays are a headache, and I can't trust them. And finally, Waffle House, official sponsor of the Zoophile community. I think that's what my notes here say. Or was it Denny's? Welcome back to PBC Primetime. Tonight, Prime City. A success story that could change the future of the Pokémon world as we know it. Lime Oppenheim has the story. Howard Clifford's ground experiment in Rhyme City seemed unprecedented. To create a space where humans and Pokémon live together not as trainer and monster, but as equals, was surely doomed to fail. Decades later, and despite its founder losing face after the widely broadcast fusion incident, Rhyme City remains a thriving metropolis, and its residents, human and Pokémon alike, say they could never go back to the way they lived before. But there may be historical precedents for the concepts that Rhyme City is founded on. 
In the library in Knaliv city, one can find a transcription of folk tales from the Sinna region. The modern translation reads, quote, There once were Pokémon that became very close to humans. There once were humans and Pokémon that ate together at the same table. It was a time when there existed no differences to distinguish the two, unquote. The implication, of course, is that humans and Pokémon once existed as equals. More than that, there were many in the Sinnoh region who believed that humans were created alongside Pokémon. Here, it is held that the god Arceus, himself a Pokémon, created all that there is in this world. In the folklore, the idea that there were no differences to distinguish the two could very well suggest that humans themselves were a type of Pokémon. While different versions of the folktale are told throughout the region, the Book of Folklore in the Sinnoh Library is, in part, a translation of a text written in an ancient language. Recently, scholars revisiting the original text found that this particular passage has a very surprising literal translation. In the original text, the folklore reads, There are once Pokémon that married people. There are once people who married Pokémon. This was a normal thing, because long ago, people and Pokémon were the same. There are lots of ways to interpret this passage. In folklore, often, the literal wording and the message it's meant to convey are not the same, so the modern translation really does retain the spirit of the story. But some scholars speculate that the text is, in fact, meant to be taken literally. There is reason to believe that Pokémon and humans did actually marry, and that the separation between humans and Pokémon is a more modern paradigm. Ancient civilizations show signs of human-Pokémon cohabitation that go beyond what we consider to be uh, comme il faut. All over the world, humans and Pokémon live together in symbiotic relationships that go beyond the paradigm of trainer-monster relationships. And while the cultures surrounding these relationships emphasize respect of Pokémon as paramount, some here in Rhyme City argue that it still boils down to a master-pet dynamic. Squirtle, squirtle. In these relationships, humans assume themselves to be the masters, the pilots, making the decisions for us and relying on our trust and good nature to carry out their wills. We have a will of our own, and while we love deeply, this paradigm is inherently exploitative. So the fascinating part of reading these texts is that this master-pet paradigm hasn't always existed. Even more interesting is that in looking at the history of Pokémon battles, which we know to have taken place for centuries, the trainer-monster dynamic that arose from it was once counter to the prevailing culture. <laughs> I love battling, if I'm honest, but my human never pushes me beyond my limits. We communicate. But some of these trainers out here are absolutely frightening. I can't imagine being stuck in a Pokeball all day, and some of these trainers just think that Pokemon centers will fix everything. Take it from me, some scars don't heal. <laughs> Among trainers? Oh, they'll tell you that their Pokémon are their partners. But you'll still find that many of them carry their partners around on their belts, which is not something that one does with their equals. In Rhyme City, Pokémon actually are our partners. There are no Pokéballs, no Pokémon battles, no masters and no pets. When we bond with a Pokémon partner, 
We do it organically and of both parties' free will. In Rhyme City, Pokémon partnering is reminiscent of the Pokémon marriages described in Sinnoh folklore. But there are some here who take the concept to another level. Oh, it's definitely known among breeders that trainer-monster relationships sometimes evolve into romance. <laughs> you see it all the time, little hints that there's something more going on. Wider society looks down on that sort of thing, but when you're a breeder, you see the way that that Charles Jard looks at his partner, and you just kind of know. Here, though, it's pretty out in the open. Sure. It's pretty blatant here in Rhyme City. Pokemon don't have a problem with it. And humans? Well, who's gonna stop an Incineroar from kissing his human goodbye on the way to work? Cross-species sex is actually a fascinating topic. There are plenty of Pokemon who are far too dangerous for any human to mate with, or even to mate outside of their own Pokemon species. But it's definitely known to happen in both cases. There's a popular pornographic series on the internet of a big, burly human copulating with a number of large Pokemon. It's not something that many like to talk about in polite company, but if you look at the internet search data from Rhyme City, you'll find he's fairly popular wanking material. Look, I don't know what to tell you. Humans are hot. They've got those little paws that can scratch in all the right places. They love giving big Arcanine's belly rubs, and they make the cutest little sounds when they- In a world of Pokemon battles, where humans call the shots and Pokemon follow their trainer's orders, Rhyme City calls the prevailing paradigm into question. Is the separation of man and Pokemon ultimately unfounded? Certainly, the superiority of man over Pokemon is difficult to justify in a place where Pokemon are able to live and thrive independently without a human to tell them what to do. While cooperation between humans and Pokemon is widely considered a primary tenant of trainer-monster relationships, such a successful experiment suggests an equality between humans and Pokemon that cannot exist in battle culture. As Rhyme City exports its culture to the rest of the world through media and trade, it could toll the knell for trainer culture as we know it. Lime Oppenheim, reporting from Rhyme City, prime time for PBC News. Welcome back, fellow zoos, and what a time to be a zoo. Um, it is definitely an interesting time in the world right now, and... Uh, I think at times like this, it is good to take a look back at uh, where we've been, where we are, and where we intend to go. And to figure that out, we've got our friend Steve <laughs> back with us today. Hi, Steve. All right, Love Cat, what's up? So, I think that we can presume that before um, the last few decades of, uh, of the 1900s, that there really wasn't a zoo community as such because it seems uh improbable that uh, that any more than one or two zoos could have ever met each other in the real world well, um uh what you no the, the impression i always got and doug uh mentioned this once or twice mm -hmm. was there was almost this sort of uh i don't want to say like apprenticeship system but there was definitely a system of uh like oh i know so and so and so and so and I've met you, so I can confirm you. And we're going to hang out and we're going to talk about, like, you know, you know, shoot the shit on animal facts and stuff and, like, uh, observations we've had, behavior, you know, uh, tips and tricks, dating advice, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then later on, 
they would go to meet someone else that they were now cool with because they know so-and-so and then they would learn more from this other zoo and there was this this uh it was almost like a bunch of individuals serving as their own micro communities who would then go and hang out with other zoos learn tips and tricks exchange ideas and then go back home hmm. so it yeah like like all the historically it seems like zoos uh we treat you know our family as our little micro community not necessarily you know with more than one two laker present but then we would go hang out with other zoos you know for that you know talk about humans love talking about you know interests that they share you know things like that sure and then you know they would just learn from that and then go back home and that was the extent of the community it wasn't like lgbt where you not only had the human need for community but also you know they were congregating to socialize and to participate in the sex mm -hmm. with zoos on the other hand it had a lot more to do with uh having a network of knowledgeable experts and friends that you could call upon but you weren't necessarily in most cases cohabitating mm -hmm. and that's but you know that and there's the whole whole spiel about you know communal farms and such which also existed where you could have anywhere from two to ten you know two layer zoos uh cohabitating and uh helping each other out but the larger communities that push hasn't come till very recently i think but is was that going on, would you say, uh, before, like, I don't know, the, the 60s and 70s? Like, are you talking about, oh, like, the, just the impression I got? Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, the meeting other zoos became uh, probably, I'm going to say probably vague memories of, you know, silver muzzles telling me this stuff back in like 1999, 2000. Mm -hmm. But the idea was as transportation became more readily available, like, uh, commercial air flight and you know interstates and stuff zoos started to start to meet up a bit more and then you had things like uh the precursors to the internet like uh oh what's it called the, the fancy radio truckers use i think uh, like C a cb oh a ham CB, radio thank you yeah cb and ham radio mm -hmm. uh enthusiasts there was apparently a little bit of a community there like very teeny wow uh well, a lot of hobbyists and generally what you would associate with Internet 1.0, a lot mm -hmm. of that, there were either analogs or direct carryovers from the earlier CB days. That makes total sense. It had just never occurred to me before. Yeah. And of course, you had things like uh, mailing lists and uh, magazines and mm -hmm. things like that. That was also a way for them to keep in touch mm -hmm. back in the day. Uh, around the around the time the like proto Internet started to take hold, though, uh, that's when what we consider the modern zoo community finally started to kind of dig the hooves in. And of course, you know, the sister culture of, you know, furriness. Mm -hmm. Was I answering a question or am I just rambling? No, no, you, you are uh, giving the necessary background of, uh, <laughs> of, of where we've been. Which I get so wrapped up in explaining stuff, I forget the beginning of the conversation. Yeah. Even if I start. Yeah, but that means that it was interesting. So, uh, because, you know, I was given a, a couple of copies of um, Wild Animal Review recently, which of course had personals mm. in the back. And I had just kind of guessed that like alternative lifestyles magazines and um, porn magazines were probably the way that zoos had connected pre internet. Um, mm hmm. I hadn't really thought about 
um, just professional animal people getting to to know each other and networking that way. Oh yeah, and uh, a lot of uh, mid twentieth century LGBT community mm-hmm. was built through uh, like magazines and personals, mm-hmm. but not necessarily ones that were openly advertising as you know, sure, queer in any way. Sure, like uh, a, a great example was uh, apparently in the mid twentieth uh, century men's health magazines mm-hmm. all you know bodybuilders and you know maintaining your shape and da 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 this and that were low-key like shadow meetups uh for the gay community especially like gay men mm-hmm. since i don't really know why the lesbians would be purchasing men's health anyways <laughs> uh <laughs> and this always reminded me of uh kind of the early goal of uh furry culture which was to act as that kind of beard for us all not uh, not just zoos, but like other kingsters and LGBT. Mm-hmm. They're basically like a, a mainstream veneer over a topic that would naturally uh, draw in uh, individuals of uh, a related sexuality. So I got the impression that the, uh, from talking to a lot of silver muscles and gray muscles back in the day, that it wasn't just, you know, the blatant porn magazines, but the trade magazines, like, you know, equestrian magazines or uh uh you know like a, a more not crappy version of dog fancy i don't know i've read dog fancy in years <laughs> but you, you know what i'm saying I, I had a stash of dog fancy magazines for sure <laughs> that's an appropriate term too stash. <laughs> oh yeah they they told it's not what it looks like it's like no I, it, it doesn't really look like anything son it's just why are they under your mattress hey oh. that's a pretty fancy dog yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh and i fancy them. oh yes hey just a quick word on the origins of the furry community mm-hmm. um if y'all haven't read this yet um there's a very short article that was written by reed waller the creator, well, the co-creator of Omaha, the cat dancer, one of the first adult, what, oh. the, what they used to call funny animal comics, right? And mm-hmm. and he wrote a nonfiction article about the origins of the furry fandom. And he well, likened it to um, the magic theater from um, Steppenwolf by Hess. Oh, right, uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, he has this Hmm. kind of extended analogy that's really illuminating and wonderful, and I think it really speaks to the heart of the experimental, accepting, playground uh, zeitgeist of the furry community. And for people who want to step in and say, no, it's our community, no, it's our fandom, and exclude everyone else, um, when you look at, you know, one of the, the ultimate, like, bedrock founding members, Reed Waller, you know, come on, before him, what did we really have for adult, well-written, in-depth, anthropomorphic um, fiction, right? Right. So, you know, Omaha the Candancer, if if people listening in haven't read it yet, you really super should. And it's all anthologized <laughs> now. There's like eight different volumes of mm-hmm. it. They kept writing it even after his partner, uh, Kate Worley's death from cancer mm-hmm. and their uh, divorce before that. Um, and, and it all finally got finished up. I mean, it took years and years to see it. But um, yeah, look up Reed Waller. I think it gives a really clear-eyed view of the origins and heart of the furry fandom. Sounds fascinating, dude. I'm trying to look it up right now. Oh, uh, yeah. I typed yeah. in Reed Waller and I was 
immediately tickled that Omaha was the next uh, like auto. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Like, hell yeah. There you go. As far as um, those early days, listening to Canis talk about, you know, zoos kind of functioning as their own autonomous community and meeting others, that's really reminiscent of how I remember meeting my first zoos in person. Although a lot of those, um, you know, we connected obviously by Telnet. Uh, we called them, oh, yeah, you know, ahead. multiple user dimensions, the MUDs, but we just called them talkers. So I'm, oh, yeah. I'm sure there's there. there's somebody out there who's like, no, that's not correct. <laughs> but fuck you, I was there. That's what we called them. I was there. <laughs> Eat shit. Or I die. was still using talkers until about two years ago. Yeah, I mean they stayed up for a crazy long time. Lentillas and sleepies. Really? Oh, sleepies was where I got my start. Yeah, yeah. Lentillas um, and sleepies were the two that I I would switch between. They'd go down from time to time, so everyone would switch to the other one. So you had redundancy there. Yeah. But we used those to coordinate in real life zoo gatherings, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I ended up meeting at least a couple of hundred zoos. So these are big gatherings. And then that's also how I parlayed my connections to CalZoo and moved out to California and lived there uh, next to their meeting house from uh, 1998 to 2000 Mm -hmm. and met lots and lots of zoos during their uh, monthly meetings. So here's the thing that I feel like we're missing now and that I feel like I might have to contribute to this apart from the the Rogerian Mm -hmm. core concepts that you're asking about. And that is that um, what I feel differentiates the zoo community then from the zoo community now, post Rande Pepe, post all this animals can't consent gibberish that that hateful people are trying to push because they hate themselves or whatever, is <laughs> yeah. time in person. Mm-hmm. That's, yes. that's really, that's the main thing. Um, it's really hard for those hateful divisive messages to reach you when you are sitting in the company of real life people making that connection Mm -hmm. even if you know in the calzoo meetings we often didn't talk about zooey stuff it was enough to know that everyone around you was a zoo and that you didn't it's what it's what you didn't have to say and what was already understood that made the most significant impact i feel like Mm -hmm. oh yes um one of the first zoos i ever hung out with we never even fully like said that out loud <laughs> that's and awesome I had to, I had to, well the thing is i was 15 16 when we were hanging out i found out that this guy had lived down the road from me like literally like a mile and a half away all my life yeah well, nearly all my life you just never know man and it was the internet furry proximity locator and i plugged myself in for the first time and i see someone like a mile away and i'm like <laughs> what <laughs> but yeah this 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 fella he had his own property uh his own half-built house which i've seen so many zoos with mm-hmm. uh he had a mare he had his wolf bitch and all of her kids and i mean his his entire house is filled with like you know what, what's that material that they uh make elvis posters out of oh velvet? velvet velvet yeah like red velvet like <laughs> uh wolves and unicorns all over the walls and shit <laughs> and we and you know you don't really have to say it out loud at that point. Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> you know what's up. And but but that's the thing. I was like 15, 16. He he uh, 
he said that he was mostly into like human women when it came to humans but at the same time he was totally like he was just trying to give me a safe space basically oh that's awesome like we never talked about sex we never talked about like 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 those couple times like yeah i draw furry porn i'm 15 he's like oh okay Here, here's a do you like such such artists here's a like titty pin up it's <laughs> like that, that's pretty tame compared to what i'm used to but <laughs> like yeah he just we i would go over there and i would watch movies with him and we would hang out and we would barely talk mm-hmm. it was just the comfort of having someone to hang out with sure. and he was a great muscle at the time too I know it was a couple times I got invited to their uh, little bonfires that they'd have on his property. And he had a bunch of other friends that would come in from out of town. Bikers, truckers, uh, questions. Never asked them directly, but I mean. Yeah, it's just understood. We would all hang out. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Sure. That that was a ridiculously important experience for me in such formative years. Sure. Just having this safe environment where you can just be you without without even having to do some of the I don't know, lack of a better term, performative mm-hmm. zoominess that I that I'd sometimes see in furry spaces where you're kind of playing it up a little too much just because you're so excited to be around others like you and da 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 and this and that, or maybe you're actually kind of repressed even around other furries, so it just kind of slips out. I've known a lot of folks like that too, mm-hmm. like ugh, no zoo feral, ugh, no, you get like one, like one or two shots into them, and they're like woohoo, feral bits, <laughs> give me the knot. <laughs> It's like you need to you need to let this pressure valve off a little more frequently. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I mean, does, I get it because yeah. you know, feeling like you've been heard and validated mm, and mm-hmm. seen for who you are is pretty fundamental to you know being a healthy human being. Sure. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, if you're not hanging out with other zoos in person, um, it's kind of you know that's the classic mechanic joke that the client comes in and they say like hey so um how do i make my car run with no oil in the engine (laughs) and then you know of course the mechanic is exasperated and says like don't don't do that you know so it's if you're asking yourself how to (laughs) how to be healthy as a zoo with no inhuman you know no in-person human zoo contact then it's Mm kind of like well don't don't do that don't avoid (laughs) you need to get out there meet people that's the kind of um experience that canis is describing that i want to see um come back and that i hope that we're um bringing back now um because i can only imagine what difference that would have made in my life to have had the friendships as a teenager that i'm having now and um, because even mm-hmm. even now, you know, at almost 40, these are some of the most uh, profound and important friendships of my life. Um, but, you know, that, that comes after, you know, years and years of internal struggle, you know, with, um, with being a zoo and uh, a lot of other yeah. things, you know, because when you, when you are uh, having a problem with your orientation, um, it, it uh, disrupts everything else in your life. You know, oh, for sure. And uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the accretions that come with that, you know, take quite a long time to uh, to heal from. Um, and it's actually it's pretty amazing how uh, how far that reaches, you know, that you're not even aware of until you actually start to, uh, you know, deal with that. And, uh, and heal from it that you realize the extent of the damage you know it's kind of like um, I think like hydrofluoric yeah. acid is a 
is the one that, or not the one, but but an acid that you know is extremely uh, corrosive. But if you spill it on you, it's like you don't feel it immediately. You know, you don't feel it until the damage is you know way done already, and then the pain starts. Right. Um, hey, so um, real quick, um, mm-hmm. if we're if we're mangling analogies for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, mangle away. It's my favorite thing to do. My favorite thing to do. So there's the, okay, my second favorite thing to do. <laughs> right, yeah. I can I can guess at the first. Um so okay, there's this trope in a lot of fiction where there's a supernatural creature that means you harm, and the only way that you can take their power away is to learn their true name. Mm-hmm. Right. Hell yeah. And that's in a lot of cultures, right? So people are then real, ca- you know, the creatures are cagey about hiding the real name and it's up to the crafty pro- protagonist to figure out what that is and then turn the tables, whatever. Right. So I think maybe the reason that that story gets told over and over is that we understand as humans intuitively that describing a problem, naming it, takes away a lot of its power. Mm-hmm. Sure. Exactly. That is exactly my takeaway. So check this out in relation to the zoo community. I think the biggest thing that we're doing that helps by making the podcast is just describing our normal mundane lives and Mm -hmm. then other zoos hearing that zoos besides them exist at all. (laughs) (laughs) And then realizing that they're not the only one. And then once they name like, Mm -hmm. okay, well that's, that's a mundane zoo life. Then they realize that that's a thing. And then it's less scary for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So for instance, behind the scenes, right. We, um, we did the stickering campaign. We're still doing it where we're giving away these holographic stickers. And I mean, it's just a sticker. We all had them as a kid. Right. But these stickers are rainbow holographic stickers and they either say lick dog pussy or lick mare pussy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then they have a little cartoon of each of those respective uh, bits of anatomy. (laughs) And (laughs) and so I I, I love the words you made. Right. And so here's what I did. I just, I crowdfunded them. I I said, hey, everybody, I have this idea to make these stickers. Give me money, and then I will use them to buy stickers, and then I will give them away to anyone who wants them. They're like, what's the catch? I said, there's no catch. Just, you know, chip in if you can. If you can't, then just uh, tell me where to send stickers, and I will do that for free. So as ridiculous as that plan sounds, it worked perfectly. (laughs) Maybe too well. I've now sent these stickers to six different countries and um, a lot of different wow. states, especially North Carolina. So if you're looking for like, hey, where's the, where are the zoos at? <laughs> where are you at, dog? <laughs> it's North Carolina predominantly, but I mean, all over places where you wouldn't, you know, where it seems like a pretty industrialized uh, urban environment. There's there's zoos there that I've sent, you know, big packets of dog pussy stickers to. Mm-hmm. So there were several people that reached out and they were afraid to give any kind of a shipping address. Sure. Right. Right. Just even receiving some self-adhesive pieces of plastic with a graphic scribbled on them by a lazy zoo artist. Right. Even that was a big act of defiance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a scary thing, you know. Right. And there's there's people living oh, at is. home with their parents, and they're like, "Hey, 
I, I waited until now to ask for the stickers because my parents are going out of town for a week and mm -hmm. this is the only time so please let me know when these mm -hmm. stickers will arrive so that I can make sure they don't get the mail before I do sure. <laughs> you know <laughs> and then okay so that's yeah. on one end oh, of the yeah. spectrum where you're afraid to even listen to a zoo podcast and then maybe one click yeah. more adventurous they express interest in the stickers but they're too scared to send a shipping address of any kind and then you know right. maybe a click after that they're getting stickers but they're just holding on to them and hiding them under their mattress or something right and then you have zoos who are sticking them up in public and they're like ha ha dog with seat fuckers and then and then on the other end there's zoos who for decades upon decades have surrounded themselves with a company of other zoos and almost take us for granted and um the first thing that we think of when we wake up is not any kind of um, exhilaration and or fear regarding our sexuality. It's just like, yeah, okay, zoo stuff, sure. Um, but, you know, I've got toast that I would like to make before the bread goes bad. And sure. Just the the sheer banality of existence is, hey, is more predominant. I'm definitely a haha lick dog pussy fuckers kind of guy. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Sir, I admire oh, I admire him every time I drive by. Oh yeah, so, yep, yeah. Still, there, there's one that I'm trying to pull over and get a, a picture of that I stuck on one of the um, the Carl's Jr. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, what do you bus stop things that I can tell from a distance that I think somebody's stuck another sticker over it and they they try to like tear half of it off or something. But I want to go. Oh, over that trick never works. I, I want to go over and see exactly like you know how how far they got because uh, i saw that the first one that i put up on a different bus stop where like they switched out the advertisement since then and you can tell that like they tried to get it off because there's like a couple of little <laughs> flakes like missing and then <laughs> nice. they are exceptionally <laughs> difficult to remove by design <laughs> and they're like yeah. fuck it i guess it's not coming off god that's what god said when he made us yeah exactly mm -hmm. exactly so yeah, just knowing um, from from maybe more experienced zoos that everyone starts at the beginning, and yeah, we're all it. scared at first and freaked out when we realize like, oh mm -hmm. my god, I might be the only one who's like this, and we're certainly the only ones that we know most likely because you know we estimate yeah. there's like one in two hundred humans is maybe a zoo mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, but then coming to terms with that involves, I mean, you have to contact other zoos to do it. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that, you know, being able to passively listen okay. is a good first step, let's say, but for slightly more advanced users, you zoos out there listening, <laughs> I know it's scary to show up in real life and, you know, meet a zoo and be like, Hey, I'm also a zoo. What's up? We're zoos. Did anything happen? Nothing's going to explode. Nothing's going to explode. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, Meet you, in a public place, I, you know, you sit down and, you know, shit, there's waffle houses all over the South. Go to a fucking waffle house. They're open 24 hours. It's cheap. You can get raisin bread. It's cool. Well, I'm not suggesting that Waffle House is an official sponsor of the zoosexual <laughs> community at it's large. Fucking, fucking hope not, Jesus. Sponsored by Waffle Sponsored, House. Sponsored, brought to you proudly by Waffle House. Um, <laughs> but they're open 24 hours. They're pretty ubiquitous across the South. 
um, where there's also a lot of zoos because rural space, you know, and um, yeah, anyone can just show up at one. It's not illegal to do that. And it's, um, you know, as long as you're not like, hi, I, Joe Zoo, would like to meet you in exchange for illegal zoo sex in my state. You know, don't do that. But if you just want to meet somebody at a Waffle House and talk, that's, uh, you know, or it doesn't have to be Waffle House. You could also do Denny's if you like um, grossness. <laughs> well, I, I, I really don't think uh, either Waffle House or Denny's really has the right to throw stones in that glass-ass house they're both in. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it literally is uh, just a glass enclosure. It's like an aquarium. <laughs> well, a terrarium, if we're being uh, accurate here. It's, it's a human terrarium. Right, exactly. But, you know, you could be... Oh, it's, it's like if you, ever, if you ever kept herps, uh, like lizards and snakes, a lot of times you have to feed them in a separate container <laughs> so they don't get uh, cage aggressive. That's what IHOP, Denny's, and Waffle Houses. That's why so many humans die at those places. Oh, well, there you go. So don't die, zoos out know. there listening. But... Yeah, you're not, not allowed. But do no reach out and take that chance and meet other zoos, at least in a well-lit public place where it's not that risky, just mm -hmm. to know, like, oh, dude, it's not just me. Um, we're, we're out there. Mm -hmm. And the Zeta principles, which uh, I have here from White Fang's page back from 1999, I think are a great foundation to remind ourselves of at this point. So I'm just going to go ahead and read them now. All zoophiles should follow a certain kind of moral behavior towards their companions, which are outlined below in the Principles of Zeta, zoophiles for the ethical treatment of animals. Bestow upon animals the same kindness one would wish bestowed upon oneself. Consider the well-being of an animal companion as important as one's own. Place the animal's will and well-being ahead of one's desires for sexual gratification. Teach those who seek knowledge about bestiality and zoophilia without promoting it. Discourage the practice of bestiality in the presence of fetish seekers. Censure sexual exploitation of animals for the purpose of financial gain. Censure those who practice and promote animal sexual abuse. And that is it. Um, well, yeah, I don't really really have a uh, counterpoint on that. Oh, no, no not a counterpoint. Come back at that. What do you got? <laughs> it's all total bullshit. Well, 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 I, well I mean, it, it could be zooier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what, dude? If anything, I'm, just... I, my, my one failing as an employee is that I work too hard. <laughs> I sometimes exhaust myself and uh, lose sight of details in my zeal to be the best employee I can possibly be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's well said it's very well said i really don't have anything to add to it it's yeah that's the thing i'm just trying i'm trying to remember it i do re i do remember uh stumbling across that web page uh back around 99 2000 when i first came online i, I didn't really mm -hmm. go further past it because it it is a or was a german language site it's just it mm -hmm. had an alternate front page in english Mm -hmm. And I do remember reading over the uh, the Zeta principles way back when. And it was, that was one of the first exposures I had to other zoos online, and that, that really that really got my heart soaring. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. praise, preach it, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I, I mean, I certainly remember personal websites back in the day, although I don't think that I necessarily came across this particular one, although tigress.com does sound familiar, but I don't recall having come across the the Zeta principles back then. I, I could have and just spaced on it, but as for uh, forming a lasting and worthwhile community, I definitely think that these are the principles that we need to remind ourselves of. Um, individually and collectively, especially at this time, and uh, expand on them and amplify them and uh, keep them in our hearts when we do everything that we do, mm -hmm. both with uh, non-humans and with each other and with non-zoos and all living beings on planet Earth. This is the yes. way to go. And that kind of um, brings me around to what you were asking about Rogerian uh, core principles. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... I guess this is as good a time as any. I'll just um, go over this real quick. There was a therapist named Carl Rogers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he started this philosophy. It's a form of psychotherapy, really, in the 1940s. And it went through about the 1980s. And it's called person-centered therapy. And there's what he calls the six necessary and sufficient conditions. But... That's more for if you're really a practicing therapist, but what I'm more interested in is what he called the core conditions. And um, they were congruence, or what you'd call modeling authentic behavior. It means that you represent yourself as you really are, right? Right. And then the probably the most important one was um, unconditional positive regard which means you accept the person that you're with on their own terms. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you just, you're willing to actively, attentively listen without interruption or judgment. Uh, you just take them as mm -hmm. they are. And um, another one that's really important is empathy. So you make it clear that you are interested in understanding the person that you're with. All right, so it's, those are the, the big ones. Um, Modeling authentic behavior, unconditional positive regard, and empathy. So what are these therapeutic practice techniques that are germane to a person-centered Rogerian therapist have to do with the zoo community? Well, let me lay this out for you, and maybe I'm the lunatic fringe here, but Doug was really interested in this stuff when we would chat, and so, you know, and now I'm bringing it up. Well, I mean, this stuff, it, this lines, uh, this is in line with a lot of the... Uh neo-shamanistic uh, self-help and uh, mindfulness uh, practices that I engage oh, in. Oh, okay. A lot of it, well, a lot of it uh, filters back to the same kind of self-love and respect for others and like you were talking about uh, a minute ago with learning the true name of the monster that plagues you. That, that's a very shamanistic way of dealing with your issues. For sure. G giving, giving your inner turmoil a name, a persona, a face yeah, it takes the power away so that you can yeah not only does it take their power away but it allows you to literally to literally engage with yourself on a personal level yeah well it, it allows you to empathize with your pain right and treat them as both a separate individual and a part of your greater whole so all you know all that sounds a little abstract maybe to the listeners at home so let's bring it around to i'm sure to something a little more specific say um sure. you know that you're a zoo and you mm -hmm. suspect that there are other zoos out there in the world and you want to re reach out to them. So you get on Twitter. <laughs> Sorry. 
So <laughs> there's all these people that will message you to go out of the way and expend energy to tell you that you're terrible, you should kill yourself, you should be killed, you're an animal rapist, all right. this, you know, all this negativity, right? So if um if you don't know where this is coming from and it's just from everywhere, there's this nebulous threat that's way more scary mm -hmm. than if you name those people appropriately mm -hmm. bigots. Mm -hmm. There or haters, right. assholes whatever you want to call them once you name them you take away a lot of that power because you have put them in a description of your choosing mm -hmm. you say okay right. i realize that you think that you're some kind of animal crusader and that you know what's right and wrong for other human beings but um i know that you are expending your energy to try to harm people and mm -hmm. that makes you a bigot mm -hmm. so go fuck yourself with a cactus right mm -hmm. Which, <laughs> exactly. which is not a very Rogerian sentiment. So that brings me to, you know, the next step on this of healing, which is, uh, and Doug really kind of struggled with this, um, which was empathizing with people who hate us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's like, but they tried mm -hmm. to kill my family. And it's like, well, yeah. yeah, I know that. But it doesn't mean that their feelings are any more or less valid to them than our feelings are mm -hmm. to us. And he's like, yeah, but I'm right and they're wrong. And it's like, yeah, but they don't see it that way. They would say exactly the same thing about yeah, you. Exactly. So if you want to get past that deadlock, what I would suggest as maybe an avenue for resolving that conflict is that Zoo's out there at home, really look at those three core principles from this therapist, Carl Rogers, for doing person-centered therapy and be your honest self. Don't try to pretend that you're someone you're not. If you're Zoo, mm -hmm. don't try to pretend that you're not Zoo. That is maybe mm -hmm. the worst idea ever. Because you're just going to internalize that that hatred that you're feeling around you and um, implode. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. don't do not do that, man. Don't destroy yourself. Yeah, you're, it's basically like a star. You, you compact your core to the point you just collapse into a black hole. Yeah, don't do it. And that's... That's where your soul used to be. <laughs> well, and also when you're talking with other people, if you mm -hmm. treat them with unconditional positive regard, even as they are hating you and it, you acknowledge like, Hey, look, as treasured as my beliefs and feelings are to me, they have beliefs that they treasure too. And if you, exactly. if you meet them with unconditional positive regard, there's a, at least a better than even chance like way better odds than you'd get at vegas that they will return that favor and come at you with like a hey man uh you treated me with respect i'm gonna do the same mm -hmm. and then now your life is a zoo just my first week on a, a activist twitter uh i actually got into exchange with an auntie and they ended it with something like why are you the most reasonable one here and i i gave him a glib yet technically honest answer in that i watch steven universe <laughs> and i take it very seriously yeah that's a really good model for authentic beneficial relationships between mm -hmm. people yeah right but yeah you know Absolutely. and it, it, it's really hard when people are yelling at you and calling you horrible names and saying that you should die and your partner should all be killed and all this stuff too mm -hmm acknowledge it that their feelings are valid to them amounts of energy yeah. yeah it takes absurd amounts of energy personal energy and preservation if you take that step and say like hey right you know you're feeling like zoos are harming animals that's really scary to you and mm -hmm. you validate that feeling 
then it takes the wind out of whatever else they were going to try to throw at you because now they feel heard just like you want to feel heard. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that really blew Doug's mind. He's like, holy shit, dude, I've always just been trying to stomp these guys into wine. And uh, here you are saying like, no, um, you need to extend that courtesy of compassion to them and empathy mm-hmm. to them if you want them to exactly. return that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, Oh, I absolutely And do. then, you know, that's the big obvious um, application for those techniques of interpersonal, interpersonal relationships. But there's something else that you can do with it, which is build authentic relationships with other zoos it's and true. really strong relationships built on mutual respect, built on acknowledgement, built on active listening. So if you have that going on, um, that's a pretty strong, unshakable bond there. And at that mm-hmm. point, you can worry about your toast and not worry about whether someone's going to discover the stickers you have hidden under your mattress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Exactly. That's it. So, yeah, oh, yeah, that's it, man. Um, modeling authentic behavior, just being your true self. Unconditional positive regard for everyone around you, including people who might fucking hate your guts. And mm-hmm. empathy, really trying to understand how other people are feeling. I know this sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm the most out of touch hippie ever, but I'm telling you, I am. No, and I, also it works. Oh boy. <laughs> no, you know, it does uh, work. it's funny be- to, to hear these principles um, formulated this way because for zoos, authenticity is the main quality which allows us to connect deeply with non-human animals. Uh, for non-humans, behavior is always an accurate expression and indication of an internal state. Uh, it's direct and honest, and it sets a precedent that we can match if we choose to. This authenticity is the bedrock of zoo relationships, and it allows the empathy we feel for our partners and companions to be effectively realized. We take care of the needs they actually have and respect their preferences and agency. And since our primary concern is their well-being, that means that animal welfare is central to zoophilia. It is its fundamental expression. So when we think about what kind of spaces zoophiles need, their space is built by these principles. Uh, These spaces don't yet exist to the extent that the fact that the heart of zoophilia is animal welfare has been erased, not only from the public perception of zoos, but also from our own minds as zoos. And without that core understanding of ourselves, we are left with only the prevailing narrative of who we are, and that narrative is propagated by those who wish to harm or exploit us for any number of reasons. And we further internalize that narrative and either don't feel that we as zoos individually and collectively are worth standing up for, or don't feel that it's possible to protect ourselves effectively. Because our sexuality is illegal and we're required to live secretly, Exposure has been used as a potent weapon against us. Fausti, for example, created a space for his non-human family in which their well-being was the primary concern. Unfortunately, he didn't have a community behind him, as zoos had lived in an atmosphere of fear and distrust of each other that had been going on for more than 10 years by that point. So you're referring to uh, the anti-zoo laws and the uh, doxing campaign that was run by Randy Pepe. Um that cost a lot of uh, zoos and non-human partners their lives. And um, 
and basically made our sexuality illegal through uh, a number of states in the U.S. And that process is almost finishing up today, finally, 20 years later, uh, and created a general climate of fear of um, very real consequences. This climate persists. Fausti talked a lot about the self-loathing and defeatism many zoos feel and our tendency to believe the worst about each other and to blame each other for misfortunes we experience, especially getting caught. We've internalized the narrative to the point that we hardly question the notion of getting caught. Getting caught what? Having mutually enjoyed sex with our partners? There's nothing wrong with that, and we should feel indignation that being docs is even a weapon that can be used against us and uh, we are now beginning to come back out of that climate um this podcast is part of that re-emergence and it's reaching zoos who uh like drew and uh doggy love earlier have never heard anyone speak positively of zoos before uh who have struggled to come to terms with their zoo sexuality because they've been born into a context in which the only known terms for it are hostile and sordid and who could be proud of exemplifying those things so it's important for young zoos to know not only that they are not alone but that they do have a context in which they exist um, because zoophilia is not a kink it's it's not something that can be played with and then moved on from when the novelty wears off or whatever uh, it's it's for life um, so to the young zoos trying to find themselves uh, make the effort to learn uh, learn everything you can about especially your uh main species of attraction um and about non-humans generally and humans <laughs> um obtain zoology degrees uh study non-human communication and behavior uh, environmentalism um you know anything that touches upon uh, who we are and what we're about. Um, mm -hmm. So pursue studies, uh, careers, and vocations that can serve non-humans as well as your fellow zoos, uh, because a community is composed of uh, of its members, and those members have to provide for the community. So we need people who can take care of each other, who have those skills and backgrounds. So um, study law. Uh, consider becoming a therapist. Uh, a, a huge number of zoos that I've met have suffered sometimes astounding degrees of trauma and mm -hmm. just about everybody uh, who, who is a zoo who, who identifies as being a zoo is suffering from a communal traumatization that, absolutely um, that's been going on for a long time but really uh took a very extreme turn uh just at the turn of the millennium there are there are any number of niches the zoo community needs desperately to fill uh realize the care and love you feel for non-humans is absolutely central to who you are and honor that in your intentions and your actions uh, respect it in others whether they're zoosexual or not uh, while realizing that your fellow zoos need you to care about them and believe in them as you learn to care about and believe in yourself meeting other zoos in person can be hugely important as instrumental as the internet has been to connecting zoos with each other, we still exist in meat space and need to connect with each other there. Larger social gatherings such as have occurred in the US and Germany bring risks. But until such time as it's safe to have such meetups again, there shall be the opportunity to meet personally, one or two at a time. Authenticity is the key to safety here as we said earlier in response to Drew's email. Zoo Pride Week is coming up. If you've been waiting for the opportunity to meet other zoos and have some good prospects, 
why not get together this first week of July for a bite to eat and some conversation? I think that'd be a great idea for a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just just on a closing note, I've got to get going here in a little bit. I would just say um, the structure of language that has made spending time an idiom um, and, and analogous to spending money or other resources, right? Don't don't right. forget that the implication there is not an implication, it's a fact. Your time is valuable. It's worth something. Everyone on earth, no matter how rich or poor, gets 24 hours of it a day, right? Mm-hmm. How you spend it right. is up to you, and it's precious and it's very finite. You don't get it back. All that by way of saying, choosing to invest your time in relationships with other zoos, meaning you're getting together in person, you're talking, you're, you know, on the internet, typing even, but like ideally having as close to like a normal in-person relationship as you can with that person takes valuable time. Mm -hmm. And if you spend it, you'll get a return on that. And if you don't spend it, then you won't. Um, Mm. I know that it's scary to spend that Mm -hmm. time to invest that and to risk, you know, exposing yourself and everything because, oh no, what if I, let people know that I'm a zoo and they reject me. Uh, fuck those people, dude. Accept yourself first and then go out there and make strong relationships. Maybe at a Waffle House. <laughs> yeah, it's a good start. All right, man. We'll be back with more zooey goodness after this. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another electrically erotic episode of Ask a Zooey. I'm the titular Dame Dane with Game and your host with the most facilitating four-legged fornication facts for all my fawning fans. And I'm your humble co-host Tex, here to help spread non-dairy love across the toasted buns via your mind. Ooh, a beastly buttered brunch of stud-slathered muffins sounds like the perfect start to my day. The best part of waking up is horse cum in your cup. Mm-mm cum. Now those would be some corporate sponsors we could definitely get behind. Or in front of. Okay, settle down. We don't want to get our listeners going off half-cocked before we start in with the questions, do we? (laughs) Well. Oh, who am I kidding? Of course we do. Half-cocked, full-cocked, no-cocked. So long as everyone is enjoying themselves, it's all gravy with this Dane lady. Oh, I hear ya. Speaking of, we have a letter from Rainy the Cloud Dragon. Rainy CD writes, Dear Zooey, I've been listening to a few of your episodes, and I've enjoyed them a lot. I have this question that's been itching me lately, and I hope you guys could have some advice for me. It's about romantic cross-species relationships, and when to know when it's okay to take things further. I want to respect my dog partner's boundaries, but I'm afraid of hurting her in some way. I want her to feel safety and enjoyment too but I'm not sure where to begin and I'm constantly questioning my morals. Have your first times been this awkward? And what are some general signs that an animal would make to signify pleasure? Thank you for reading. Well, Rainy, two things right off the bat. Number one, putting your gal's well-being front and center in your mind is always a great foundation to start from. And two, if you aren't sure what to look for, reaching out to others in the community for advice is absolutely the way to go. But we also encourage you to do your own research into dog behavior. You can only benefit from knowing more. So let's jump right in. It's good to reiterate the basics from time to time, especially when it comes to the fundamentals of a healthy, zooey relationship. Quiet. Now listen closely. This goes for all of our wannabe canine Casanovas out there. Go slow and pay attention to the way your partner reacts. 
If she's not interested, she might lower her tail, turn around so you can't touch her back there, sit down, or just walk away. Don't feel shy about asking, as you won't hurt or offend her by simply expressing your desires, and she won't be shy about letting you know how she feels, so long as you are paying attention. If your gal is interested, she might squint her eyes, lick her lips, move her tail to the side, aim her butt at you while turning her head around backwards to look at you expectingly. Mainstream dog-on-bitch foreplay involves licking her ear, licking the side of her mouth, then sniffing and licking her vulva, alternating between the three over and over until she's ready to be mounted. You can replicate this somewhat by petting her ear, petting the side of her mouth, then gently squeezing her vulva between your curved index finger with your thumb. And when she's standing up and your thumb is pressing down to gently squeeze her clit, she will probably turn around to sniff and lick whatever scent you picked up from her. If she turns back around to aim her aft and your way, that's a good sign she wants more of what you have to offer. If she gets bored and walks away, then maybe you can try another time. Always remember that it's okay to be rejected. Don't rush, pay attention to her, use lube for penetration, and if she enjoys the foreplay and gives her consent, feel free to go to town. With our Bitch Basics 101 laid out for our listeners, let us address the questions of guilt and awkwardness Rady brings up as well as some more general Zooey communication and relationship advice for outside of the bedroom. Unfortunately, feelings of guilt, especially when first starting out, are all too common among an oppressed sexual minority like Zooms. From what you've written to us, Rainy, it seems as though your beloved's needs and comforts are being put first and foremost, which is always a fantastic and fundamental first step. It's important to remind yourself that, so long as your lady is enthusiastic and comfortable with the situation, you've got nothing to be ashamed of. My co-host is quite right. Giving your four-legged partner the love and attention they desire is the pinnacle of zooiness, regardless if she's playing fetch in the park or playing bury the bone in the bedroom. If you're still dealing with some doubt about yourself, there's nothing wrong with taking things slow. The more time you two spend together, at the park or long walks, or just relaxing next to each other on the couch on a lazy Sunday afternoon, the more both of you will come to pick up on each other's body language and mood. It's often argued that humans and non-humans can't understand each other and communicate, but any zoo with a clue knows that just ain't true. Dogs are highly social beings and are exquisitely attuned to their postures, movements, expressions, and proximity of everyone in their environment. That means other dogs, humans, and everyone else. Because humans are so impressed by our ultra-complicated linguistic mode, we tend to overlook the importance of visual communication. But to dogs, this is central, and they are watching and interpreting every mood we make. Spending time together will help you attune to your own visual communication abilities, and pretty soon, you'll be having conversations you may not have expected you could have. You can be challenging at first to begin, just like with any relationship. Getting to know one another can help you both establish a sense of trust and safety, where the two of you can open up at your own speeds. Good luck, friendly neighborhood cloud dragon, and don't let your fears and doubts rain on your parade. It's okay to take things at a pace that's comfortable for both of you. No need to rush a good thing. And that's our show, dear listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to answering all your Zooey relationship questions next episode. Keep those submissions coming. We'll see you next time on Ask Zooey. Same zoo time, same zoo channel. Thanks again, friends, for tuning in to Zooier Than Thou. Join us next month for Zoo Pride, when we'll be talking about all things Zooey and Prideful. You can subscribe to the podcast using our Zooey RSS feed. 
Just point your favorite browser at rss.zoo.wtf. You can find us anywhere podcasts are available. YouTube, Spotify, Alexa, and that one your Granny Smith warned you about. Our podcast website remains zoo.wtf. And if we knew why, then we'd know a lot more about the universe than we currently do. Our Zooier Than Now Twitter is at Zooier Than Now. You can follow Zooey's Naughty Advice at AskZooey. Steve can be found at Steve2. That's Steve with nine fucking E's in the middle and the number two at the end. Follow me, Canis Gnosis, at Canis Gnosis. That is C-A-N-I-S-G-N-O-S-I and S. And me, Lovecat, at A Cat Who Loves You. We have a form that allows anonymous submissions on our website, zoo.wtf. You can send us your 27-phase plan for overthrowing two-legged hegemony and instituting a zoo world order. Ask Zooey how to get your pussy purring like a Persian, or send us 75 separate monosyllabic schoolyard insults that we're just going to delete without even reading. You can also email us directly at mail at zoo.wtf. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and any despairing non-humans of your acquaintance so they'll know that at least some of us are trying. All non-humans had to put up with a whole lot of ridiculous human miscommunication, but honestly are so used to it that they didn't even bother to mention it especially. Always remember that behind every great man stands a great dog facing the other direction. A reminder to please donate to our Help Save My Dot Dog campaign. Lucy's chances of recovery are very high, but only if her surgery can be obtained. Please help us and make it happen. I'm Lovecat, the friendly feline with the curiously curled tail. I'm Kinestosis, your keeper of the old lore. Telling you to be kind to each other. It's still the sexiest, zooiest thing you can do. We'll see you next time you feel like howling at the moon.